Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. Alright, welcome everybody. This week we are reading Noach. Noach is the second portion in the book of Genesis, and actually the second portion in the Torah. And it takes up about five chapters, from chapter 6, verse 9, through chapter 11, verse 32. And Noach, of course, tells the story of Noah. Our discussion of the parasha today will take the form of an interview conversation with Rabbi Emily Lozbin Ostrov. She's the rabbi of Temple of Israel in Wilmington, North Carolina. Now, for those who haven't been here for one of our interview episodes before, as usual, we'll spend the first little while talking about the Torah portion. In this case, it ends up being about 15 minutes. And then there will be a short break, and we continue talking. In this case, we'll talk about Jewish life in the South, as well as about ritual and books and other Jewish things. So if you can stick around for the entire conversation, I invite you to do so. Rabbi Emily Lozman Ostrov, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. You and I are old friends. We were classmates together at Hebrew Union College. You were ordained in 08, is that right? Yes, I was. Um, and today you are the spiritual leader of Temple of Israel in Wilmington, North Carolina. So I want to talk to you more about that later. But for now, if it's okay with you, let's talk Parsha. Fantastic. So we're reading Noah, and I think most of our listeners probably know the, the story, at least in its basics, right? God sees the evil of humanity, decides to wipe out all humanity, except for this one guy, Noah, and his family, which is pretty much what we're about to talk about. And so Noah builds a, an ark, and all the animals come on. In, in many ways, it's a rebirth story. It's a story kind of of creation happening again, of humanity and the world being reborn out of this flood. One thing I noticed as I was reading through the Parsha this year, prompted by you and the questions you had raised to me by email, is that it turns out this is not only the story of Noah. It turns out there are actually a bunch of people on the boat with him. And so I wanted to read two verses, and then we'll talk about who these people are. This is from Genesis chapter 7, verse 13. That same day, that day being the day the flood started, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Yephet, went into the ark with Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons. And then it goes on to say, and all the beasts of every kind and the cattle and all the various animals. So Noah is on the ark, so are his sons, and we know their names, and all of their wives as well. And let me read one more verse just to drive home the point. This is chapter 8, verse 15. This is where God tells Noah and everybody to come out of the ark. It says, God spoke to Noah saying, come out of the ark together with your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives, and bring out all those animals, the ones we were just talking about. So we have in the end this story of not a person. It's not Noah and the ark. It's actually Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Yephet, and all their wives in the ark. And what you pointed out to me is that those people don't have names. They're here. They're clearly present. 
but they are not named. They are simply called the wives of such and such. And so I know you've done some research on all this, and I was curious, what do you think is going on here? Why does it appear that way in the Torah? It's so interesting with what you're saying. I, I want to also, you mentioned Noah being the only one that is picked. You're right. It's the rest of the family. Noah is referred to as the righteous man in his generation. We don't even really know how righteous he was and by whose standards. Um, there's various midrashim that if you were to evaluate Noah today, uh, would he stand up? Um, and then what do we know about his sons? And we get a little bit at the end of the Parsha about his sons. But as you said, his wife doesn't get a name and the son's wives don't get a name. And in our culture, within Judaism, naming is so important. In fact, even in this portion alone, we have all of the begots, 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 mm. all of these names of people that get mentioned who we don't know anything about and they don't do anything about. And so it's so frustrating that here is a, a woman who, if it wasn't for this wife of Noah, there would never have been the sons. And if there weren't the sons, there wouldn't have been the rest of the progeny that would lead to our faith. And how come if naming is so important, these women don't have names? Yeah, it's funny. I never thought about it quite that way. You have in these genealogies, both here and last week in Bereshit, these long genealogies of name after name after name of people that we don't know what they did. And here you have people that are doing things. They must have been. They were on the boat. They must have been helping take care of the animals and uh, all kinds of repair and maintenance and upkeep. <laughs> and uh, who knows what they were doing. And yet they are not named. It's almost as if they're invisible or not present. Which is something that happens time and time again in the Torah and in the Bible in general. And I want to be clear to mention that it's not just women who are unnamed. And we could definitely have a conversation about the unnamed women, specifically in this portion. But just think about um, in the stories later with Pharaoh and with Joseph, you have the unnamed cupbearer and the, the baker. We have the unnamed men who turn out to be angels. So th there's lots of unnamed men as well. But Unfortunately, it is even more prevalent with the women. What first got me actually into looking at the unnamed characters in the Bible, I say it's the unnamed characters known only by their roles or their relationships. So here we're talking about the relationships of being wives, uh, was actually Potiphar's wife. Not to jump us too far into the future, but with Potiphar's wife, um, just think that if she hadn't seduced Joseph, Joseph never would have wound up in prison. He never would have been in a place to eventually rise to, to power. And so here in, in our story for this week, you know, why, as you said, why don't we know Noah's wife? She, if, if nothing else, if nothing else, the wives had to comfort the spouses. They had to be there to support them. And of course, be there for the, the future generations. But there's some interesting midrashim about Noah's wife and uh, different names that are given to her, um, as well as names that are found for the son's wives. Actually, um, there's a great children's book by Rabbi Sandy Sasso, who was the first woman ordained by the Reconstructionist movement. And um, she has a great book in which it tells the story of Noah's wife and names her as Nava. Hmm. meaning sweet or pleasant. And that's from Midrash. I'm pretty sure that that's from Bereshit Rabbah, uh, where the rabbis say that Nama, who's Nama's mentioned in the last Parsha as the daughter of Tubal Cain, a descendant of Cain, and they say that's who Noah's wife was. Yes. In fact, that is the most prevalent name that is given to 
to Noah's wife. And you mentioned my research and the research I did, I used all kinds of sources to try to find names of these different characters. And that's one of the reasons I, I, I love Rabbi Sasso's book so much is because uh, even though it's, it's for children, it's a great story that builds upon Midrash. She doesn't just divinely get this name as if it didn't already exist in, in other works of biblical criticism, you could say. It's interesting that the Midrash, the rabbis of, we'll call it what, the like second to fifth centuries, which is certainly much later than the Torah, are quite invested in figuring out in some cases who these people are. And so they give a, a name to Noah's wife. They give a name to the daughter of Pharaoh, who's also another woman who's only known by her relationship, Bat Paro, the daughter of Pharaoh, they call her Batya, which actually means daughter of God. Which is very interesting with, with that some of these names that you'll find, some of the stories wind up really elevating some of the characters, um, which makes us think even more how come they don't have names. On the other hand, sometimes the names actually do not elevate the character. And um, in a way, it almost gives reason for why they're downplayed. Um, and it's interesting. Another thing that often happens with these characters is not only does their their name get explained, but also further relationships. And it turns out that they wind up being the spouse of this person or the mother of that person. I know you mentioned it's not only women who are unnamed in, in the Torah, but I'm thinking through the different characters you've mentioned. In terms of women, we have daughter of Pharaoh, wife of Noah, wife of Lot, they're relatively invisible. Pharaoh's daughter might be a um, might be an exception to that, but then you think about the men who are unnamed. Um, I was thinking about the um, the cupbearer who hadn't occurred to me before, as well as there's this unnamed man who Joseph finds when he's going to find his brothers. Yes. And the, this guy's job is basically to say, you know, your brothers went that away, and then Joseph goes and finds them, and all the rest is history. So these, in the case of the men, it, it almost seems like they have these pivotal roles. You know, if not for the cupbearer, Joseph would never have gone to Pharaoh. If not for the the unnamed man, Joseph would never have found his brothers and never been sold into slavery and et cetera. Do you think that the women, the unnamed women are treated differently in Torah than the unnamed men are? Or do you think that they as well are understood by the Torah to have pivotal roles in, in the story? I, I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, I <laughs> think that yes, they are treated differently. And maybe it is uh, a symbol of how women are treated in the Torah. And I, I think that could definitely be explored and um, is a bit frustrating. And it would be interesting to look at some of the women's commentaries um, recently came across a, a woman who had written a whole version of the Torah from a woman's perspective, hmm. uh, kind of rewrote it, as well as there's a book called The Five Books of Miriam. It'd be interesting to look at it from, from that perspective. But I, I would also argue that these roles are pivotal. So as I mentioned, had Potiphar's wife not seduced Joseph, none of the other actions could have come into place. Now, maybe some of these women's roles are not positive. So obviously that's not positive. Another thing with Lot's wife, had Lot's wife not turned into a pillar of salt and, and disappeared, then um, what happens with Lot's daughters couldn't have happened um, hmm. or presumably couldn't have happened. So again, you know, that's a very negative um, 
not a, a, a good picture, but I still think it's a, a pivotal role. Um, even though I'm a big fan here of Nama, of Noah's wife, I, I don't know that her role is so pivotal other than having the children already. To be very honest, in the actual biblical story, if Noah's wife isn't there, it doesn't really change things. But had she never been there, there never would have been sons and that would change things. So I do think her role is uh, essential. Right. She's actually the mother of all humanity as exactly. far as the story is concerned. She's like the Eve of this story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The Ramban agrees with you. The Ramban says... The rabbis say that she was famous in those generations because she was a righteous woman and gave birth to righteous children. And this is why scripture mentioned her. So in other words, the Ramban, that's Nachmanides, right? Um, 13th century Spanish commentator essentially says that that was her role. She was the mother of all life. She gave birth to these children. Therefore, she bears a mention. And it seems to me, I don't know, as a modern person living in a world where we're more and more attuned to how certain people are invisible. It seems to me that we don't get to fully see her role here. Nama, if that's her name, also must have played innumerable other roles on the Ark together with Noah and her family. The word that keeps coming up in my mind is invisible, that the work she does is invisible. And it seems to me that even in, in our society today, that the work of women is often invisible. The work of people of color, visible minorities, um, the economically disadvantaged. There are various people in our society who are invisible. And so maybe this story is a kind of a cautionary tale that everybody deserves to have a name and that everybody deserves to have their work and their contribution be recognized. I, I love that you're bringing that up. And I do think it's an important part of who we are as Jews, right? We want to be seen. Uh, we want to be a, a light into the nations also means that we need to make sure everybody is seen in that light. And there are far too many people who are invisible in our, our world. You know, when you go into a grocery store or a restaurant, do you bother to check the name tag or ask your server or the person checking you out what their name is? It's amazing to me that a, a sweet interaction with somebody who you only see for a fleeting moment can change the course of your day and therefore change the course of, of so much of what happens to you. And we, I believe, have a, a responsibility to make people be seen and to make sure that every voice is heard. And when we don't know somebody's name, that's the very beginning of not caring about who they are as a person. Um, not caring that we are all but Selim Elohim, as we read just last week, that we're all created in God's image. So we have to understand our, our role and our responsibility in it. And unfortunately, I think within the Torah, there are lots of people who are silenced by not being named or not being visible. And we have a, an, an opportunity, maybe even an obligation to lift them back up. And I, I think by giving these characters their names and even pausing for a few moments to think about who they were has such great power. And, you know, I, I appreciate that, that opportunity. That is a beautiful sentiment to, to end this first part of our discussion on. Uh, can I ask you to stick around for a minute? We'll take a short break and then we'll continue our conversation. Fantastic. Thank you. Let me take the opportunity of this short break 
to say a huge thank you to our newest supporter of 7-Minute Torah, and that's Cass Rohrbeck, as well as another anonymous supporter. And to all those who give a small amount each week to support the production of this podcast and the production of inclusive liberal Jewish learning, thank you. I also want to remind you that two weeks ago we started two new weekly Zoom Torah study groups. One is called Torah from the Beginning, and it meets on Tuesday afternoons. And our Digging Deeper into Torah group, which is really for anybody who's looking to further their knowledge, meets on Fridays. If you'd like to join one of those two groups, you can go to my website, micahstreifer.com, and you'll see a link for Torah study. And if you'd like to become a weekly supporter of 7-Minute Torah, you can go to patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah, and I'll put all those instructions into the episode notes. And now back to my conversation with Rabbi Emily Losbin Ostrov. So if it's okay, let's continue. I know you had a little more to tell us about this, this matter of names. Well, one of the names that I came across for Noah's wife is Emzera or Amzera, the mother of seed, uh, which again, kind of relates to what you mentioned earlier about the fact that she is the mother of all life. And uh, that's, that's a big deal, right? I mean, we think about what a big deal Noah is and why aren't we, as you said, giving that same credit to, to his wife. Um, this idea of calling her Emzera, um, the, the mother of seed, um, actually makes it, uh, ties in quite nicely with Rabbi Sasso's book, which has Nama being the one who goes about the earth and rescues all the seeds. We talk about the animals, but how do we go about uh, repopulating the earth in terms of all of the, the vegetation? So mm. that, not to give away her book, but I definitely uh, encourage it as a great way of, of looking that. And I did find an article uh, by Francis Lee Utley, um, which actually gives over a hundred names for Noah's wife. It's called the 103 names of Noah's wife. Wow. And they, they come from a, a lot of different places. Um, but, uh, and some things are slightly more uh, Greek than, than Hebrew, but I, I find it uh, quite, quite interesting to to look at that and some of it relates to some Kabbalah um, and uh, also again relating to this idea of Noah's wife being pleasant or Noah's wife being a mother of the earth or mother of seed um, this connection to the earth so I, I think there's a, a lot to be to be said and this is just one of the many characters that we get to, to search for and also in in the research I was able to find some names for the the wives of the sons uh, huh. also from the article uh, by Utley and some of these, may come from a midrash some of these come from from various places but it's there it's just we have to do the work and you know that reminds me of the the question you asked why should we have to work so hard to find out things that should be obvious um, that should be visible to us but i i do think it's our um obligation and our our ability and responsibility to to try to make sure that everyone is visible and everyone has a name i love that you know you and I are both small congregation rabbis, and you know. So to bring this to bring this around to our own lives, and you know, our 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 Judaism today, and specifically the work that you and I do, I often feel like that the real benefit, the real goodness of a small congregation, is that 
when you walk in, everybody knows your name. It's like Cheers, right? The place where everybody knows your name. Um, whereas, and I think there's lots of goodness to all kinds of congregational life, but in a smaller place like you and I work, I think being able to be known and to know one another and to be family and community, to me, that's been a really important part of, um, of, of why I've chosen small congregation life over the years. Absolutely. I, I've, um, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, this is my 15th year in what's considered a, a small congregation. And even as a, a student rabbi, I served small congregations. I wasn't the, uh, a rabbinic intern, but rather the, the kolbo of a, of a small place. And it really made me fall in love with that because that's not where I grew up. I grew up in a, in a larger congregation and uh, I love that as, as well, but we may have to do the cheer song in Hebrew or something now uh, to have maybe do that as a Friday night song. <laughs> um, but it, it is a, a beautiful place. And, and I also talk about my temple, my congregation as a family. And uh, I think that's an important piece to all of this as well. So I know that your congregation, which is Temple of Israel in Wilmington, North Carolina, is a historic congregation. Will you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, um, we are the oldest Jewish uh, house of worship in the entire state of North Carolina. Uh, we were founded 1872. The cornerstone of our building was laid in 1875, and it was dedicated in 1876. Uh, it's a beautiful Moorish revival style building in downtown historic Wilmington. And quite honestly, I had never heard of Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. Growing up in Philly, I knew Wilmington, Delaware. And um, wow, this place is really having an amazing resurgence. And it's just beautiful to to see this building. And it's a it's a treasure for our Jewish community, but it's really a treasure for Wilmington. And, and I would say a treasure for all of Southern Jewry as well, which is a whole entity that uh, I know you know a little bit about as well. And sure. um really quite quite interesting so our building is one of the 10 oldest synagogues in the united states to be built as a synagogue and still used as a synagogue today hmm. pretty remarkable um and it's a very interesting um building when you walk in you'll see beautiful stained glass um except for one uh stained glass that has kind of um, a moon on the inside it's all geometric and so um People don't always uh, realize it's a synagogue from the outside or even, you know, right away. Um, but it's a, it's a very special place. And uh, because it is quite an old building, we're right now uh, doing some restoration and renovation of age-related issues. And uh, we can't wait to be able to get back in and worship in our space. Uh, and if you don't mind me sharing as well about the community, it's very interesting. For those who don't know of Wilmington, North Carolina, we're on the coast and it's become a bit of a a hot place for retirees. And uh, we get people who are coming here to retire from the Midwest, as well as the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. And with that, of course, comes all other people moving to support those services. And in town, we have a big university and we also have the beach. And uh, so there's a lot going on. So for those who are planning a vacation, consider Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I have to say, I didn't realize you were from Wilmington, Delaware. Is that what you said a few minutes ago? Well, I'm from Philadelphia, so uh, or the suburbs of Philadelphia, so an out, about an hour from Wilmington, Delaware. So. Okay, so you've basically moved from Wilmington to Wilmington. Right, and we often, when we go home to visit my family, we drive, and so we get out of Philadelphia, and we'll pass the signs for Wilmington, Delaware, and we're like, 
oh no, we still have another six or seven hours to drive, but it is exciting. <laughs> so as someone who came from the Northeast, um, you've now been serving in the South for what, five years? Yeah, this is my fifth year. Yeah. Tell me about Southern Jewry. Tell me about how it is to be Jewish and to be part of a Jewish community in the South. Well, you and I both went to uh, the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union College. And so I was very lucky to have Dr. Gary Zola as a professor. And I did take a class um, on the Southern Jewish experience. Hmm. And also while serving in uh, student pulpits, I served in Missouri, Joplin, Missouri, which technically doesn't sound like the South, but it, it kind of was. But I also served, um, I did a little bit of work in Bowling Green, Kentucky, but I did serve two congregations in Arkansas, in Pine Bluff and McGee. So I really got a good taste of uh, the South even before I came down here. And uh, it's it's really fascinating. I'm, one of my dear congregants who since passed away, uh, Joanne Fogler, grew up and she would just speak Yiddish with this Southern accent. And I just loved it. I would just love to hear her. Uh, she'd throw Yiddish words in with such a Southern accent. No one, no one could do it as, as good as Joanne of blessed memory. But, um, you know, again, it's, it's quite interesting uh, being down here. One thing people always say is they love to say, uh, what church do you go to? And it's okay if I say the synagogue, they just want to know that you go to a, a house of worship and, um, you know, they'll, they'll call it a church. And But it, it's played a big role down here. Um, I think it's always interesting to see how Southern Judaism um, and food interlap um, it's, uh, in it and come together. Um, Dr. Marcy Cohen Ferris has uh, done a lot of work with that. She's at you uh, and she's she's fantastic. Uh, Matzabal Gumbo is a, a book that she wrote. <laughs> Religion plays a big role down here. I'll I'll say I think there's some um, maybe anxiety sometimes from people of being Jewish and moving to the South and and fearing anti-Semitism, but. Um, you know, Kinahara, I, I haven't experienced that. Probably, to be quite honest, less anti-Semitism down here than I ever experienced in the greater New York area. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up, as I think you know, in Louisiana, among other places. I also lived in Mississippi. I was born in, in Alabama. And um, my I now haven't lived in the South for quite a long time. And I'm here in the Great White North, which is a whole different conversation. But my my experience of being Jewish in Louisiana, Mississippi, was that the community was tight knit, that um, we weren't always a very big community, depending on where you lived. And so people needed to really work hard to opt in that the synagogue became kind of a kind of a haven, a place where you could go and be with people who were like you, a place where you could really go and form community. And I think that's the truth. That's true everywhere. I know it's true here in my congregation outside Toronto also, but maybe especially in Southern places where, um, where Jews are significant minority and where you, and where religion plays such an important role that the synagogue really does become a place to build community and to be together with people who, um, who you share core values with. Absolutely. And the, the opting in piece is a, a big piece, you know, in, in New York, uh, in certain communities where you feel everyone is Jewish, there's less of a, a need to be connected into the Jewish community. When you come down here, uh, people want to know that they're not going to be the only Jew. In fact, I have a number of congregants who 
would tell me that they came down here and they had certain criteria if they were going to move to Wilmington. And one of those was uh, an active Jewish life. Mm-hmm. And it's it's great to see it um, boom down here too. We have a, a big Jewish film festival. Um, we started this year, or excuse me, a couple years ago, we started our, we call it the Big Nosh and it's our Jewish food festival. Um, there's there's a lot going on and it's really great to to see that. But I will say, you know, one other thing to mention about being in the South is grappling a little bit with Southern Jewish history. And uh, unfortunately, Wilmington has a horrible history of a a governmental coup um, in 1898. And um, I was just talking to somebody recently of saying, well, you know, I I guess I have to look into it and see what role any Jews might have played. And that's um, that's scary to think about that. We also have a a placard in our city um, that Judah P. Benjamin who was the highest ranking Jew in the Confederacy, um, that he spent some time here. And uh, at one point, it might have been interesting to, to see that sign. On another hand, now I, I wonder, you know, do we want to have that taken down, that historical marker? And um, there, there's a lot to, to grapple with that. But the positive is I think we have a lot to teach and a lot to offer and um, it's, it's been exciting and there's a a lot of Southern culture too. Um, And I just love being able to say Shabbat Shalom (laughs) y'all. I have a sign in my office that says Shalom y'all. Thank you for sharing all that with me. It's really interesting. And I think it's really interesting for our listeners also to hear about different Jewish communities and what it's like being Jewish in, in, in various places. Um, And I'll also point our listeners to um, our podcast of, um, I think it was March 1st, 2022, where I interviewed um, Rabbi Barry Block from Little Rock, who also had some interesting things to say about his family's own connection to um, Southern history and the, the very challenging things that that, that, that brings up. Uh, can I ask you a little, a little more about your rabbinate? Please. So what's your favorite thing about being a rabbi? Wow. My favorite thing is being able to be with people on the best day of their life and also to be able, so it's a double answer, and also to be able to hopefully help them find hope when things are incredibly dark on some of the darkest days of their life. Um, Right now I'm in uh, wedding season and I have a bunch of weddings coming up and what a blessing that we get to be there with these couples and their families for the blessings and, and the bar mitzvah, you know, um, sorry, this is a long answer, but um, I think one of the greatest moments I, I always love is when you're working with a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah and they read from the Torah for the very first time. And it might be just a rehearsal with you and maybe a parent. Um, and it's just that look of, yeah, I can do it. Hmm. I can do it. We're really blessed to have a lot of great moments that help us deal with things are, are, not always easy as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand that, that feeling of privilege of being led into people's lives and helping people make connections really to Judaism. Is there one aspect of your work that you are particularly proud of? I'm really grateful for um, the the interfaith work that I, I do. Um, this past year, I was actually honored by our NAACP chapter by being given the award of clergy of the year. And um, I try to do interfaith work uh, here within the community. And that's all part of, I would say, the bigger Tikkun Olam piece. And that's um, really why I became a rabbi was my love um, 
of our faith's obligation to make the world a better place. And uh, right now we have a wonderful Takuna alum committee where I am and we're just doing amazing, amazing things and getting it out there into the community. Um, but if you'll permit me, I'll say two things. So one is the Takuna alum work. The, the other piece that has become really a big part of my rabbinate that if you had told me this when I started rabbinical school, I, I wouldn't have realized is actually the work I do with people who are choosing Judaism. Hmm. And um, I've been really blessed to work with so many people who come to to Judaism on their own or through other people and really it makes us have to stop and and. Uh, be thankful um, that we have this opportunity to bring people into our faith, but also the kind of models that we we get to be, hopefully, and uh, not to take those of us who were born Jewish, not to take that for granted. I say we all have to be a Jew by choice, uh, whether we uh, whether we were a Jew by chance, just happening to be born Jewish, or whether we choose it, we all have to choose to actively participate and celebrate. Nice. I have two last questions for you. These are the questions I ask everybody that I interview. One is about ritual and the other is about books. Pretty much, you know, my two favorite things. Uh, and so I'm wondering, is there is there a Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful for you in your life? And then the second question to give you a chance to think about it for a minute is, what book do we all need to read? Well, I, I will say, um, kind of piggybacking a little bit on what I just said about uh, working with people who choose Judaism, the power of the mikveh is something that is really incredible to me. And uh, I grew up at Shirami, which is the uh, reform synagogue in Newtown, Pennsylvania. And when I was, I think, uh, already in college, we had, they had hired Rabbi Shira Joseph as the associate rabbi. And Shira, Rabbi Joseph, would work with people for conversion. And when it would come time for them to go to the mikveh, she'd have to travel for hours because there was no mikveh in the Philadelphia area that would allow her as a woman to go with the candidates to uh, the conversion candidates to uh, into the mikveh. And so the synagogue decided to build a mikvah. And at the time, this was again, I, I think I was in college, I thought that was a little bizarre. Why does a reform synagogue need a, a mikvah? <laughs> Women aren't going for nida, they're not going once a month in the reform movement. Uh, so why did we need it? And I, I grew to understand that it was not only for Rabbi Joseph uh, to be able to be there and all female rabbis, but really all reform rabbis, but also this beautiful opportunity for us as reform Jews to reclaim the mikvah. And um, while I've gone with many people to the mikvah for conversion purposes, uh, been able to support people who go for other reasons, uh, whether it's getting out of uh, a traumatic experience, um, overcoming something painful uh, for before a wedding. It, it's really been amazing. So in a way, I, I would say the, the mikveh is a, a ritual that I, I really love um, and love that even myself being skeptical uh, have totally hmm. re-embraced that. Yeah, I, um, I as well find the mikveh to be a really powerful ritual and symbol of renewal. You talk about conversion certainly as a moment of, of of rebirth in a way we Jews don't use the language of being born again but converting in you know in a sense is a a moment of renewal and rebirth but as is 
getting a clean scan after after months of chemotherapy or you know um getting your divorce papers or Absolutely. you know sending your last child off to college or something like that and these are really powerful moments that in which we need some kind of a ritual a hundred percent i i found it to be incredibly powerful for me um going to the mikvah before i got married hmm. going to the mikvah before i became a rabbi um going to the mikvah after my father died uh, at, at the end of the one year of mourning um and I've also uh, gone to the mikveh after um, suffering a, a, a loss, um, a pregnancy loss. And so it, it's been really amazing to see. You, you mentioned rebirth, and we might not use that term, but we are, when we get into the mikveh, supposed to let every part of the water touch our body the way that uh, a child in the womb has every part of the, the fluid touching their body. Uh, so... You know, that's really the ritual uh, that comes to, to mind first. What you said about mikvah made me think also about our Parsha to kind of bring it full circle, which is that this is also a story about water, right? And so at the end, that's another way to read the Noah story is that this is a story of rebirth. It's not a pretty story. And if we had another hour to talk, I'm sure we'd have lots more to say about Noah. But I will say that in some ways, the mikvah as a story of rebirth out of waters mirrors a lot of stories in the Torah. The creation story is a story of birth out of waters. So is the Noah story. So in many ways is the the parting of the Red Sea, a story of the rebirth of the people out of the waters. So I like the idea that when we go to the mikvah for whatever reason, that we're reenacting this historical and mythological and, and um, national experience that we've had over the course of centuries as Jews and as humans of continually being reborn, continually figuring out who we are as we move forward. And to that point, I'd also add, let us not forget the power of water and water coming from the rock. And in having talked about Noah's wife and the power of women, let us not forget about Miriam and her well and um, the the role that water also plays in terms of now with the Miriam's cup. And in talking about the portion, if I can add one more uh, interesting piece, it's also, there's so much symbolism and symbolism that ties into that idea of rebirth in this portion. Think about the rainbow, the dove, the olive branch, all of these, you mentioned it being messy and yes, it is messy, but on the other hand, think about all the beauty that comes after it. And I think it's a, a reminder for us that life is messy. Life can be hard and challenging, but when we have patience, when we have faith, when we have hope, when we work hard as Noah did to build the ark, we can come out of it with, God willing, a rainbow and some symbols of peace as well. Amazing. So last question is we're way over our time here. Um, one book, one book that you recommend for all of our listeners that is worth reading. You know, um, just mentioning this to a friend yesterday, I say it all the time, Rabbi Kushner's book, it's not why bad things happen to good people, but when bad things happen to good people. And um, in, in our world, we're always searching for answers. And sometimes the answer isn't uh, the answer to the question of why, but the answer to how do we keep going. And so I think it's a, an important book to to read and, and read again and uh, helps us to, to have faith. And as soon as we uh, end, I'm going to think of about nine other books uh, that I, I think we, we need to have. And um, um, 
but that that's a, a good easy one I think for for everyone to to read and maybe ties into the story of the the flood um, in that living in I will say Wilmington North Carolina there's a, a certain word we uh, don't say in the month of October or September I guess I can say the word hurricane now but uh, my very first year here we had Hurricane Florence come through and uh, it actually dispersed many of us for the holiday uh, for, for Yom Kippur. And we had to learn to rebuild. And five years, well, almost five years later, there's still parts of our community that are rebuilding. But there's also organizations that have grown and uh, come to be beautiful pillars of our community that have come out of that pain. So um, I would just add, uh, you know, this this modern world that we live in where we can see the pains of things that happened in this portion, I want us to also look for the hope. And so I think that book uh, uh, does hopefully help us find that that hope as well. Rabbi Emily Lasben Ostrov, I want to thank you for spending some time with me. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you for your insight on the Parsha, for teaching us about the work that you're doing and and for encouraging us all to to find hope in the world. Thank you. Thank you. That's my conversation with Rabbi Emily Lasben Ostrov. I'm grateful to her for making the time and grateful to all of you for taking the time to tune in and listen. As always, if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at rabbistreifer at gmail.com. Next week, we'll talk about Lech Lecha as we meet Abraham and Sarah and continue our journey through the Torah. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoy this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7minutetorah. To join one of our new weekly Torah study discussions on Zoom, go to micastreifer.com and click on Torah Study. Mm-hmm.